0: Hi, and welcome to Sophist Symposium. Uh, We're your hosts. I'm Doug Daffin.
1: And I'm Chris Bendeman.
0: And we'd like to dedicate the first couple minutes actually talking about ourselves, because we didn't get around to that last time. No,
1: see, now we're super legit. We have a massive tech upgrade from last week. Last week, we were uh, sitting lounging in Doug's living room. We had one laptop on the table. We were very low tech. And now we've got these condenser mics, we've got this whole setup, we've got metal uh, extender arms across Doug's desk here, we've got two laptops set up.
0: If all goes well, this podcast will be coming to you in stereo.
1: Oh yeah, we're <laughs> this is going to sound really good. Actually, that's a good point. You can, you can do one left and do one right. That'll be beautiful. Um, so you can really be in the room with us. I just have
0: to remember which one of us is left and which one of us is right. well
1: unfortunately, I think that uh you and I are fighting over who's the furthest left <laughs> <laughs> all right, so speaking of about us um so Doug and I are friends and colleagues. we are law students at the University of Texas at austin um and this this whole podcast is Doug's brainchild well, um,
0: partially uh so I decided that Chris and I have such fun conversations that there really should be a microphone there Um, because we just we we have a good time and we talk and we think we sound smart and maybe someone else will too
1: maybe like one or two other people is is i think the most we can hope for so um i thought this was a great idea i wasn't convinced though until i brought it up at law prom which is otherwise known as the barrister's ball if you're being very sophisticated, and everyone said that we should do it, so we succumbed to peer pressure. I would say,
0: yeah, there's some peer pressure involved. Um, generally, we weren't, we were a bit, uh, what's the word, humble, kind of.
1: I mean, sure, <laughs> that's. I us. mean, uh,
0: maybe we were just afraid of sounding like idiots.
1: Which I think that we've accomplished either way. So I think that we were more afraid that nobody would support us sounding like idiots.
0: Yeah, that checks out.
1: Yeah, I think that works for us. So um, I think, yeah, that that's kind of who we are. Um, if we think of anything else that we need to describe about ourselves, I guess we'll kind of wing it, as we've been doing so far. So now we're on the second episode of our vaunted Sophist Symposium. And this time, I got to choose the weekly topic. Doug got to choose the drink of the evening. Um, today's topic is, I'm going to term it, The Cartesian Nightmare. And I will describe to you what I mean by that in just a few. First off, we got to get to our drink of the night, and we got to get to our rules. So, Doug, what are we drinking here?
0: So, tonight we have a summer shandy, and I know what you're thinking. It's the end of January, or February, excuse me, but it has been so unseasonably warm that I decided that tonight we'd have a refreshing drink. Um, This summer shandy is made by Ludenkugels. Uh, and that's the only way I know how to pronounce German words is angrily.
1: I think this is Leinenkugel.
0: Yes, you're right.
1: Yeah. Well. Oh, look, you actually, if you look at the top left corner of this, this, uh, label, it actually says the...
0: Leinenkugels.
1: Look at that.
0: Hey, it tells you how to pronounce it. That's cool.
1: That's incredible. All right. Well, that's excellent. We've already been given true knowledge by this, um, this Shandy. And uh, in case you guys are not familiar, yes, in Texas, it is like 80-something degrees right now.
0: Yeah, I was in my room sweating because the air conditioner was off.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I so, um, we're we're trying a little pilot thing this time. So as you guys know, generally the idea is going to be that the person who picks the topic picks the drinking game. We're going to try a little pilot program tonight where we're going to have one rule. And Doug's going to tell you what the one rule I came up with is.
0: Yeah, so our one rule for tonight is called When Senses Fail... And that is when we want to make a point, but our memory doesn't allow it.
1: And basically, this is going to be any time, as we saw from last week, where we want to reference some kind of source of knowledge, whether it be a good author or a philosopher or a professor or something we learned in a class, but we realize that we can't remember it well enough to really do it justice.
0: Like that one baseball player that said, they don't think it be like it is, but it do. It
1: do. It really do. And by the way, that's going to be our first drink of the evening.
0: Was he even a baseball player?
1: See, I don't know, man. I mean, I certainly didn't remember that. It was all on you. So, tonight's topic is the Cartesian Nightmare. And I'm going to set this up in a couple of stages, uh, because I think that's more interesting, and I think that I admire what Doug did last week with the uh, sort of partition, bifurcated subject area. Um, So we're going to start like this. I'm going to tie this in with last week and say that uh, let's start with Aristotle and Plato. Now, Plato was discussed last week. I know we we focused on Socrates, but obviously, Plato was an important part of all this. I discussion. actually
0: forgot about Plato.
1: Well, well, he's
0: he's the Doctor Dre of <laughs> classic philosophers. Don't forget
1: about don't forget about Plato. So, I'm I'm thinking in my mind here, and we may have to do a show note for this. But there's this marvelous Renaissance art piece, and it's I'm I'm going to try to remember it here. The School of the Philosophers, that's what it's called. I'm actually, my senses are not failing me here. And it's this beautiful work of all of these incredible classical philosophers and teachers, and really, as Doug describes, sophists, uh, lined up in this beautiful temple. And two of the characters in this piece are Aristotle and Plato. And Plato is depicted looking at aristotle and pointing up and aristotle is depicted looking at plato and pointing down and the symbolism is that plato was a famous proponent of the theory of forms which we'll describe in a moment whereas aristotle was a famous proponent of the theory of empiricism the difference being one presumes That there are ideals, platonic absolutes, we might call them, that really describe the world we live in and anything that we see in the world sort of falls into one of the categories of these platonic ideals. For example, colors, shapes, sounds, anything that we can determine an ideal form of, we assign a category to and we put everything in our individual experience of the world into those categories compare that with empiricism that says that any categories that we come up with is based on our earthly experience so doug where do you fall on this debate to start with
0: um i'm actually on the side of aristotle okay uh simply because i think that when you form an idea of something um you base it on your earthly experience and this is like the no black swans Um, idea, which is people in England didn't think that, uh, black swans existed. They thought, you know, that that's a form of the black swan that just doesn't exist until they found some in Australia.
1: So that's interesting. I I thought the direction you were going to go with that is one of my favorite logic fallacies, which is the no true Scotman fallacy. Are you familiar with this one?
0: Uh, yeah, fairly. I do it all the time.
1: So, for our listeners, um, the "no true Scotsman" fallacy is is summed up by this really fun story, where you have to imagine a Scotsman sitting down with his morning whatever whatever they eat in Scotland haggis. Haggis. I don't think that's fair. I think that's maybe a Irish or Welsh stereotype.
0: I'm pretty sure haggis Hag, haggis is Scottish.
1: I don't know. Well, my senses fail me either way because I don't remember. So that's going to be a drink. Cheers. So. The idea is he's sitting there – let's imagine him eating his haggis, and he's looking at the morning newspaper, and he sees this horrible story of some – you have to imagine the equivalent of Florida man here in America. Somebody's just gone off the rails in England somewhere and done some kind of heinous act, and it's being reported by the newspaper. And he sort of sighs and scoffs, and he says, ah, no true Scotsman would ever do that. Or, or rather, he says, no Scotsman would ever do that. I'm jumping the gun a little bit. And then the next day, a newspaper article comes out, and it describes the exact same act being performed by one of his own countrymen, to which he replies, ah, no true Scotsman would ever do it. So it's this idea of redefining these forms however your earthly experience uh, dictates in order to make sure that you never have to surrender your ideal of what the form is
0: um you know i i didn't go for the no true scotsman because i'm i'm opposed to the ideal form in a couple other ways which is um generally the way i go about it is i say imagine an apple right and you might be imagining you know a red um medium-sized like I don't know brands of apples, chink. (laughs) Cheers. But we know there are golden apples and green apples, and there's a spectrum of apples.
1: There's a spectrum of apples, I would say so. And
0: when one imagines an apple, you know, you probably do default to a red apple, but that doesn't mean that that's the ideal, because if I'm baking an apple pie, you know, I'm going to use Granny Smith apples.
1: Sure. So so you've got your favorite apple, but what you're describing is basically the category fits everything in our experience. It only becomes expanded or narrower narrowed based on our experience. Yes. Um and I you know what? And I'm I'm with you. Um and that's gonna become more relevant as we go on. Um but basically, so we have to imagine this initial contention between people who think that there are such things as what we would call platonic ideals. Things like, well, even if we can disagree about what our senses tell us, we can at least agree that there are such things as like mathematics or uh, shapes and that we describe things by those shapes and that almost even as a tabula rasa, and I know that I'm misusing that word because tabula rasa really means something without all of these uh, precepts. But even as a empirical tabula rasa, the The Platonist would say, "We have these concepts of numbers and shapes, and we ascribe into those categories what our experience in the world ends up being in comes Descartes Descartes was um a French philosopher he was a philosopher who existed as part of the parlor societies that we talked very, very briefly about last week, and he was a philosopher that was all about doubt and skepticism. Um, He was all about trying to figure out what things we can really say that we know, despite the fact that we have to accept that a lot of the extrinsic knowledge that comes into our minds may not be reliable. So he had two thought experiments he liked to do to show why his skepticism was well-grounded. The first of them is basically described as a dream. So, His idea was, well, in a dream, things kind of come at you madly. It's a chaotic experience of what you imagine are extrinsic factors, extrinsic um, senses. You feel like you're smelling things and looking at things and feeling things. But what's really happening is you're being tripped.
0: Well, maybe in your ideal dream.
1: Well, okay.
0: But in my dreams, it's simply a number that's counting upwards.
1: Is that what happens in your dreams? No, thank God. <laughs> oh boy. You dream in actual platonic absolutes. Um but, but he sort of talked about this idea that we well, you know, even in a dream, there are certain things he could feel confident about in the world. But and, and we're gonna get to his more famous thought experiment in a second, but I would in fact um propose that Descartes really didn't realize that what he was describing was a true Cartesian nightmare. And the reason why is that his thought experiments ultimately, I think, and I'm going to try to convince you, Doug, fail to show us why we would ever feel confident in any information that we would gather from the outside world. Uh, Descartes' favorite um, or most most famous, I guess, statement is cogito um, ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But he didn't stop there. He used that as the kernel of truth that he could absolutely rely upon and then build out of that everything else that he could know about the world. He started from a position of absolute skepticism and sort of worked his way outwards. I am going to propose that he can go no further than that. And none of us can go any further than that. Here's why. His most famous thought experiment is that of the evil deceiver. The evil deceiver is a character who has such total control over your uh, senses that he can trick your senses with whatever he wants. He can make you think that up is down. He can make you think that left is right. He can make you think that white is red. He can make you think any number of things from your senses. And in fact, you may be no more than a brain in a vat. And he is just leading you through absolute trickery, making you think that you have senses, when in fact they're all just being uh they're all just deceptions
0: until keanu reeves comes along
1: until keanu reeves comes along um it's very fortunate that descartes thought about the matrix (laughs) so many years into the future
0: yeah and then a second um a second thing i'd like to tack on that's a bit more earthly okay um supposing we're not brains and vats is uh was the dress White and gold or blue and black?
1: So I looked at that picture many times, and I can honestly say that I determined that it was a different set of colors each time I looked at it.
0: I, I defaulted to white and gold.
1: Did you? Because as I went on, I believed more and more often that it was um, blue and black, I have to say. Although, here's the interesting uh, parallel with The Evil Deceiver. I think that most of the versions I were looking at, I was looking at were doctored. I think that there was some subtle doctoring going on a lot of the time with the pictures I saw. And I think that, more than anything else, is what determined what I thought I was seeing. And I know that there are documented accounts of people doctoring that image in order to get more people on their side.
0: So is Photoshop the evil deceiver of our times?
1: It could be. And we're going to talk about the evil deceiver of our times, definitely, in a little bit um i'm trying to remember where i where i left out off on um, so that's that's another number
0: my, one you you did uh thought experiment number one
1: and, and we kind of talked about evil deceiver for a yeah. second um however we do need to take a drink now because i do not even remember where i was so that's my senses have definitely like failed this this is, this is a, i like this one so essentially my problem um Descartes essentially determined that even if this evil deceiver, who, by the way, is not completely omnipotent, um, Descartes had this line, and it's a line that I really want to rest a lot of my argument on today. And it's this line that no matter what the evil deceiver tells him, no matter what senses are input into his consciousness, whether he is a brain and a vat or not, there must be certain things that are true. And one of the statements he had is is a paraphrasing on uh, this. I exist and I must exist and it cannot be no matter what is being fed into my consciousness that anybody can claim that I don't exist or that they will one day be able to claim that I didn't exist for I existed as surely as and this is my favorite bit two and three make five and when I hear that or I read that I think to myself what on earth is he basing that on he's basically saying that. And this is really what, what strikes me. There are a lot of experiences that every human being has before they become, let's say, conscious, right? I mean, what's your earliest memory? Your earliest memory is almost certainly not when you were two days old or three weeks old or even two months old. You You probably had a lot of experience with the world before you started forming these instances of consciousness that we would accept. And... People like Descartes and Plato seem to have this idea that there's something they can do to separate all of that experience out of their memory enough to claim that there are things sitting above all of that. That there are categories like shapes and numbers and mathematics that they can say are divorced from their experience of the world. And Doug, I don't think either one of us believes that.
0: Well... In a sense, it might be the only thing I believe, actually, Chris, Um, and I know I just got done saying I don't particularly ascribe to idealism, but I think because we invent um, mathematics and shapes, like they're human things um, based off of human creations based off of natural phenomenons. They're the only things that are particularly verifiable. Like you can one plus one equals two. Because 1 plus 1 equals 2. Because we made it that way.
1: Well, you can you can make that argument tautologically. But I think that what I'm saying is... What Descartes and Plato try to say is that these things really do exist. They exist in a separate realm from the extrinsic world around us. And they are they are real things. They're things that you can really use to describe the experiences you have with the world. And they're things that are useful in interacting with that world. And I think that there's no reason why... Let me give you an example. There have been stories throughout uh, the very modern age, unfortunately. It's it's kind of tragic. But there are experiences where we've seen young children growing up in absolute darkness. There there are stories of parents, for horrible experimentation purposes or just plain old cruelty, locking their children from birth in dark rooms in a basement and never allowing them to interact with the world we know. And... Those children have been studied. Did you know that they don't have a concept of the separation of objects from one another?
0: Yes, I've heard that.
1: Now, doesn't that tend to disprove the notion that there's any such thing as... I mean, one of the things that is is a predicate for understanding numbers is to understand that there there can be discrete objects. But here are people who have not experienced the world we've experienced who don't agree that there's such a thing as discrete objects. So isn't it a necessary predicate of what's a so-called platonic ideal, that you have to experience the extrinsic world before you even understand that?
0: Um, I, Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, you wouldn't get around to inventing mathematics if you had no reason to.
1: Right, but I, I think what I mean is more like, I guess let me think about this for a second it seems to me that any claim that these things are real things separate from the world i'm i'm comfortable with saying that our senses tell us these things are real and our senses demand these things being real see
0: the thing is i'm comfortable saying they're real because we invented them
1: but we invented them based on what that that's really what i'm trying to get to yeah, based. descartes was trying to rebut the premise that Anything he knows is just trickery and lies because somebody could have, you know, someone could have put his brain into that and just fed him information to the point that he believes certain things that are not descriptors of the real reality, but rather whatever someone wants them to believe. And I think he failed to rebut that premise. Uh, I think that if someone had total control over what is going into your mind, into your consciousness, you would invent whatever kind of mathematics makes sense in that world. So, you know, maybe your mathematics doesn't have any discrete uh, entities in it. Maybe there's no algebra in your reality if everything is connected to one another. Maybe you come up with calculus, which is, my understanding is calculus is about um, non-discrete mathematics. But discrete mathematics don't even make sense there, right? Yeah,
0: or maybe it's non-Euclidean geometry everywhere.
1: Sure. But, But whatever it is, there are certain things about the universe we experience through our sight and our smell and our hearing and our uh, ability to touch we believe certain things about like mathematics and numbers and shapes because of that but I don't think any of those things are necessarily the case I think we can imagine universes where those things do not hold and so I think Descartes fails I I think that his Descartes dreams are really more of a nightmare for us because we rec I think we have to recognize that he didn't beat the evil deceiver the way he thought he did the evil deceiver could be very real. I've, I've puzzled Doug here. You have to imagine him sitting here with a very pensive look on his face.
0: Yeah, but it's not like the dignified sort of pensive look.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Let them imagine what they're going to imagine. I want them. I'm gonna. I'm going to deceive the audience. I'm going to tell them that what they should be imagining is a very dignified look.
0: Yeah. See the the problem I've always had with, and you might call them deceivers. I call them matrix theories. um, Is that, frankly, I never really bothered to care all that much about them because, in the end, everything's the same regardless of the deceiver or not. Um, in that sense, I'm I'm definitely someone who would take the blue pill. uh, In the matrix. Okay.
1: I'm so sorry. You have to remind me which pill does what.
0: Well, for that we need a drink.
1: Okay, fair enough. My senses have failed.
0: Um, blue pill, uh, keeps you in the matrix. Red pill lets you see how far the rabbit hole goes.
1: Okay, so you're you're down with the, and here's the thing: I don't disagree with you, Doug. I I, I don't even know if it matters that much, except in a, a, uh, what's oh boy, we're gonna have to drink again, but. What What is it called? The existential nightmare? Is, is that... Am I calling it the right thing?
0: I don't know what you're referring to. Okay,
1: so an existential nightmare... First, we're going to drink. An existential, existential nightmare is yes. when you run out of alcohol. <laughs> Luckily, we won't be doing that for a little bit. So an existential nightmare, I think, essentially, is the idea that it's not something that's necessarily discomforting in a really empirical sense but rather you you sort of recognize something about the human condition or something metaphysically that just sort of makes your mind scream it's like um have you ever read i have no mouth and yet i must scream yeah okay so you kind of that's existential terror right like that's the existential nightmare is is uh the characters in that so okay for our audience i really encourage you to read this it's pretty terrifying it's a short story it's very gruesome but it describes what I'm talking about well. It's the idea that you, uh, a being, a creature, in this case a, a human, can be in conditions so awful that even though life is livable from a... I don't know. I mean, you can eat and drink and live. and
0: I mean, essentially the guy's reduced to a state of just pure existence. With, with no, no purpose. Nothing. And yeah. basically his only with purpose is to else. suffer. Yeah his, yeah, his
1: purpose is to be tortured forever. And... It's this idea of that's so horrifying that you can do nothing but sort of scream. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is this idea that we can live in the world, and it certainly seems to work to live in the world. But what is the nature of our world? I mean, every time scientists tell us that they found a hologram theory that, you know, it's so popular these days for scientists to assert that we're all living in a hologram, right? And I know what they mean by that. But even knowing what they mean by that, which is essentially that the things on our 3D reality, maybe 4D reality, uh, if you include time, is really just a play out of forces that don't even work in our four dimensions, but rather operate in higher and lower dimensions. And all that happens in our universe that we know of is like a cave. It's like the cave of those forces. You know what I mean? Like... All we're seeing is the shadows, the penumbra of those forces playing against our wall. And we think we understand certain things, but we're not getting anything out of it, really. And every time I hear an argument like that or I I see proof to that effect, I always think of the evil deceiver. And I'm always thinking to myself, we have to seriously temper any expectation we have that anything we've thought we've proven, even scientifically, makes any kind of sense because... What are we even describing? Are we describing cave paintings? Are we describing shadows on the wall?
0: See, again, I've never been particularly interested in um, these theories because, like, frankly, and I think I'm restating this, is, like, it doesn't change anything to me um, if it's one way or the other. Uh, If there's no, you know, if there's no way to escape the matrix then why bother um discussing whether or not you're in the matrix or not because to me frankly the matrix is where you are and understanding where you are is more important than understanding where you aren't
1: okay all right i I mean i can hear that i I think what i'm really trying to talk about is you know it's not functional and I, i think that we gave the uh the head note at the beginning of the first week's episode that we're not talking about functional theories and metaphysics here. We're we're playing around. But I do think it's valuable to talk about because I think that it, it fits neatly in with your idea of people who think that they have knowledge about things. And and last week you certainly suggested that scientists would be sort of uh good scientists would be um excluded from the category of sophists and i don't think so i think that kind of everybody is i think that we're if if we really take seriously what descartes was talking about i think we have to lay down our arms at a certain point and say you know what i'm not even sure we can say that there are relative uh qualities of philosophy it just seems like a wash because how do we know i mean so much of our our theory of well, this theory of philosophy is better than another, this theory of science is better than another, is the assertion that somehow it describes something real, something functional, something we can work with. And I think the the Cartesian nightmare is, what if none of it does?
0: Well, it, whereas my response is simply that even if we're being deceived, it's real to us. So, like... Uh... I mean, science works, you know. We can send someone to the moon uh, if we put enough money into it. And for that, we have, you know, if we're in a matrix, we know the matrix's rules. And simply, our philosophy is just should be limited to the matrix. Um, it like. Maybe. Well, I mean, we can, we can discuss, you know, the existence of a world outside the matrix, but when you're talking about real, when you're in the matrix, real is the rules of the matrix.
1: I suppose that's fair. And, um, and, and, you know, I see where you're coming from because obviously if you really are in deep, if you're in deep enough to the evil deceivers world and they so control everything that the way to exist naturally is to operate by the rules of the evil deceiver. Um, Then yeah, I guess it doesn't matter, but you know, it's the kind of thing that could keep some people awake. It's clear to me that it doesn't keep you awake at night. It seems to me that that your view is, well, if there's an evil deceiver, then I've been playing by his rules long enough and it seems to work so far and everyone else seems to be working by that same uh, process too. But I think that the existence of The Matrix as a wildly popular movie series is kind of proof that a lot of... Well, it was a series. (laughs) There was more than one movie. Um, Kind of, I think, has to kind of show you that people do get bothered by this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it was... I think we can call it a meme for many years during the time of The Matrix and to some extent even still today... The idea of the red pill. I mean, how how many places on the internet talk about this idea of the red pill? That, that somehow someone's going to come to you and explain to you the real rules of the world that you thought you understood, but no, you really didn't understand. Um, uh, do you know what I'm talking about, by the way? These red pill societies?
0: Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I have the pleasure of that knowledge. Um, I know that recently some people have even been calling... Donald Trump, the red pill of American politics.
1: Yeah, so, so listener, in case you're unaware, the red pill is a subreddit. Um, that's one example of the red pill. The red pill is also a very popular um, meme on 4chan. Basically, it's it's been co-opted by alt writers. basically. It, it may have always been an alt-right thing. But essentially, the red pill as a concept on the internet is the idea that a person is going to give you some knowledge that once you know the knowledge, you realize that, and generally their big, bad, evil deceiver is the mainstream media and the liberal elites, but that you're going to get this knowledge and you're suddenly going to realize that everyone's been lying to you and that there's a real truth to the world that was being kept from you. And once you understand, once you have this piece of knowledge and suddenly the world of truth is going to open up to you. And, and, that is a real I mean, that's a real thing in today's uh, internet at the very least. The red pill is a serious phenomenon, and people really do believe in it. They run around talking about it. A lot of alt writers feel like they are red pilling communities. I mean, Doug, you're absolutely right. The the notion that Donald Trump is a um instantiation of the red pill, I think is very real. Um so I think that this this notion of the Cartesian nightmare is very alive in today's politics and media interactions.
0: Um, I think we get the red pill meme idea from people um, not willing to accept the truth as it is, uh, in a sense. But it's it's weird because like the only reason why people swallow the red pill. Is because they see like some empirical evidence that supports whatever idea the person's pushing um and that's why it's kind of predatory is it's like it's like um if someone was to logically do you know an a follows b or sorry b follows a thing, and they show you that a exists, but they don't show you actually that b follows a. Um, they just lead you to believe that, oh, since, you know, I'm telling you that if A, then B, and I'm telling you that A is a truth. Um, and, let's see, uh, for instance, the, the original red pill that I heard of was a really, um, sexist dating, like, seduction, just, just awful, like, venomous website, uh, and, like, it starts bringing people in by teaching them, you know, about self-confidence, in in a sense. Like, it, it inspires confidence in yourself because it talks about male worth. Um, but then, and that's the A, but then, and that worth, you know, that confidence helps you attract um, people in the beginning, but the rest of it doesn't necessarily follow.
1: And the rest of it you're talking about, I know what you're talking about this this sounds like the yeah the I don't red like pill talking subreddit. about it I mean what Doug's talking about basically is the red at least the subreddit I'm familiar with essentially teaches people that women are invariably um parasitic, and I mean obviously neither Doug nor I agrees with this. We both think it's disgusting um but what he's talking about is essentially that you can bait people with the idea and and Doug, you know who their targets are, their targets are males who are consistently um who who feel underappreciated by women or or rather that they want to get with women and they're not getting with women yeah and and the red pill essentially teaches them to believe that nice guys finish and and you know you know nice guy syndrome right yes yes so it it preys it, it is predatory it preys upon nice guy syndrome which is essentially the belief that women do not like nice guys and that's the end of the story it, it kind of says that you know for every i mean everyone's familiar with the cringe stories the idea of a person being like oh well i guess nice guys finish last when in fact the reason you're not getting with the girl of your dreams might have more to do with the fact your life isn't together or the fact that you're highly unattractive or the fact that you creep her out or any number of things but but the assertion is always, "Oh, well." he's an asshole to her and i am a nice guy and that's the distinguishing factor. So the red pill is an i organiz- is a community that teaches principles like that. It teaches principles like women are parasitic in uh nature. It-, it teaches a lot of really dark ideas that you know, Doug's right. They claim follow from the assertion men have worth. Um and Doug, i'm not ass- i'm not asserting that there's anything inherently positive about that all i'm arguing is that in that uh instantiation amongst others the red pill has a lot of a lot of weight with any listener and even if it's not well uh,
0: yeah i think it has a ton of weight with anyone who's unwilling to accept uh the truth and instead they want to substitute it with something that they like better.
1: Well, what if it's not even just – I mean you're you're moving – you're pulling from the perspective of the establishment knows things, right? And I can understand that. In today's world, science, the establishment science really does have its shit together. But what about like a Galileo or even a – okay, who was the one who came up with the uh, – the heliocentric version of the universe. Copernicus. Was it Copernicus. All right, we're going to take a drink on that one. I think I'm going to finish my beer here. And Doug is uh, I... moving quickly to catch up with me. Yeah. So if you were living in those times, I can imagine a solid argument that you could go to somebody and say, the church is lying to you. And if you just, if you see this nugget of information that I can give you, you're gonna realize some some really basic tenets about the universe that you never understood, and all I have to give you is this one red pill of the sun is the center of the solar system, and I think in that context, we can really understand that's a real red pill that that's something that's like I mean you know Doug and I both understand before uh, yeah,
0: you're right because like. The, the you know, the communities we were describing before um, were really, like, they're not real red pills in the sense that they're not, well, I don't know, I, I with with all my heart, I want to say they're not right, but I, I guess I can't completely be sure of that fact.
1: And the thing is that I'm not even trying to argue to you that yeah. anything about, you know, um, verifiable truth. All I'm saying is there's this very powerful existential urge in people that once once you tell them that, you know, I have some information, that once you hear it, you'll understand that everyone's been lying to you. I think that that's what's sitting underneath the matrix. I think that that's what's sitting underneath the red pill in, you know, even its own horrible way. I think that people are really driven by that idea of, oh... I've been lied to. And I think that that evil deceiver is so alive in today's media and intellectual uh, uh, debates and especially political discourse.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Um, One thing I've noticed is that, God, today, you know, both like ardent subscribers to any political philosophy seem to have their own set of truths now.
1: I mean, you're right. The echo chambers are are so powerful at this point. And if you look at all of these sources, um, we'll we'll bring up you know Breitbart, and but they're not alone. I mean, there's there's several news sources out there. I mean, the only ones I can really name, obviously, this is my echo chamber. But the ones that I know are dark, dangerous places full of non truths are like Breitbart, Infowars. Um, so that's the right. And the right wing end of the spectrum. I don't I don't I'm sure that there are. I am sure that there are far left publications that do the same thing.
0: Yeah, Salon's kind of bad.
1: Salon I've I've definitely heard Um, of.
0: There's God, there's one I forget. Okay. I forget. So that's a
1: drink. Hmm. Hmm.
0: And um like it's it's on both sides.
1: It is. But what they do is they tell you, you know, X person says this, but we know the truth. And they kind of, you know, try to tell you, ah, but what about this? What about that? And and unfortunately, the whole thing about alternative facts these days is, is each one of them can kind of serve as its own red pill. And, and the problem with the political discourse today, I think, is largely founded upon the fact that instead of having a identical or at least similar set of facts that we all rely upon to make our points – Even if our set of facts we think point in different directions, instead what people are doing is saying, aha, you think that X is true and that's why you make your argument. But what if I told you that Y was actually true? And then sort of the implication is, well, if a different fact is true than what you thought, then a different reasoning and a different argument is also true than what you thought. And I think that that's what Doug is really also referring to with that idea that A does not necessarily lead to B. And yet it's so powerful.
0: Yeah. Um, if you can prove A, then you kind of already have someone's trust. And you can trust them. You know, if A is true, you can trust them. They'll trust you that A also leads to B.
1: And the sad thing is, A isn't even usually right. In the context we're talking about, it's more like, are you pre- are you pre- predisp- predisposed? To believe that A is true. Exactly. And then when someone tells you A is true... Even though the media is trying to tell you B, they say, fantastic, I finally found somebody trustworthy. And then you can say something else, and they'll believe that too. So I, I think that people are finding, you know, the tra- So
0: here's a question for you, then. Okay. Is is it in today's society, um, is our hunger for, for a red pill leading to a... Uh, many deceivers.
1: Yes. I think that what's going on these days is everyone is looking for, they're, they're looking for their true source to tell them where the evil deceiver is. I think everybody believes that there is one. I I think that, you know, there are so many alternative sources of truth these days, whether it be factual truth or, Uh, political truth or even any kind of doctrinal truth, whether it be religious or otherwise. Um, And they're willing to believe that there is someone out there telling them the truth. And on the other side, there is at least one person out there trying to lie to them. I mean, I certainly believe that there are truths in the world that Donald Trump is trying to lie to me about. I think that there are truths that uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway is trying to lie to me about. I think there are a lot of people out there who are actually trying to lie to me. And that's really amazing because when I really sit down and think about it, is it really reasonable for me to think that they are trying to lie to me? I mean, they're probably not trying to, right? I mean, maybe at least they know or at least think they know things, right?
0: So what I think the situation is, is that people are seeking out a red pill that doesn't lead to the world outside of the Matrix, because that world was shitty, but it leads to a world where everything that they believe is right.
1: Yes, they they definitely are picking it. I mean, OK, that's a very good point, and I want to talk about that for a second. The alteration on the red pill that we recognize in the, in today's public discourse of any nature is that. The red pill doesn't tell you anything you don't want to know. The red pill is only going to confirm for you the things you want to be true. And in that way it's the most it's more effective than it's ever been, right, Doug?
0: Yeah, the red pill becomes the uh the deceiver.
1: Oh. Okay. I didn't know I didn't know we were going there. All right then. Um the red pill becomes the deceiver. I guess yeah could. instead
0: of instead of living in the matrix and taking the red pill to escape the matrix, what people want um or seem to be seeking is that they live outside the matrix and they want to take a red pill into their own matrix where everything aligns with their own ideals.
1: But wait, Doug, wasn't it you who said that the at the jump of this conversation that in fact it doesn't matter either way that whatever world that you describe whatever rules that it has as long as you're comfortable there and you're living there it doesn't matter so what's the difference i mean everybody gets to choose. the
0: difference is um and and this is sort of my my approach is that i try to make myself the difference is between making yourself comfortable with the world as it is and making the world into something that's comfortable as you are now
1: but what's the distinction i mean anybody who has predis who is predisposed to believe certain things is going to think to themselves, ah, finally, I have gotten in touch with the real world. And of course the real world uh, agrees with my sense of the real world, because that's just how it works, right? I mean, exactly the way you were describing at the jump of the conversation, you know...
0: Well, the the difference is that in one, you're altering yourself to suit the world, and in the other, you're altering the world to suit yourself.
1: But how can you tell? Because um, if we if we run with the assumption that who cares because whatever it is as long as it works it works then how do you know what's being altered your own perception or or the world around you it's just well the difference
0: is that people aren't when they hand out a red pill they're not actually taking you into a matrix Um, they're not changing the world they're just trying to assert um lies about the
1: world but how do you know the difference between the lies and the truth the only distinction is which one's you agree with and and that's
0: i mean you can do it the same way you can tell any lie from any truth which is study
1: ah see it's that's that's the problem though doug is that i think for the purposes of this this discussion we kind of have to throw that to the side and say you know what i mean here's the thing i'm trying to run with what you said at the beginning of all of this which i agreed with which was basically you know who cares about what's right and what's wrong from a super um exterior view of ourselves in the world we think we live in because by default the rules of the world we think we live in work in the rule in the world we think we live in because
0: well but there are some things that are empirically provable um flat earthers you know if they they might take their red pill um from someone who's trying to tell them that the earth is flat yeah but just because they believe that doesn't make it true. But you'll
1: never convince them that it's not true. That's what's important here. What I'm talking about is the idea that once you've taken the red pill, your world is changed. I think that that's the important bit behind the Cartesian I Nightmare. Mean,
0: but the thing is, is that I could take a red pill that convinces me that I can that gravity no longer affects me, but if I jump out the window, I'll die.
1: Well, I mean... I don't think we can go exactly that far because even there, I wonder what you could say about the mindset of the person on their way down. What what I'm saying is that in all – for all intents and purposes, a person's perception of the world is real for them. And if they perceive that there are certain rules that describe that world and that all those things line up in their heads, then how can you tell them that they're wrong? They're just going to continue to believe – here's what I'm really talking about, right? You and I both know Trump supporters. Yeah. And you and I both know that they assert certain things about the world that neither one of us could ever agree with. Some Mm -hmm. of them are assertions of politics. A lot of them are assertions of fact. And while neither of us disagree – sorry, neither of us agree with anything they're saying, in their worlds where Donald Trump is president, Kellyanne Conway is whatever role she is – let's take a drink because I have no idea – She's head noisemaker, I minister guess. Minister of propaganda, yeah, basically, right. <laughs> I, I don't. Sorry, know.
0: minister of truth.
1: Minister of truth. I think Steve Bannon might be Min- actually. Mm, I don't know what Steve Bannon is. Probably Big Brother, Darth Sidious. <laughs> um, but no, I. Uh, I mean, they in they are living in their own world. I mean, they are living in a world where certain principles prevail over others. Certain facts are true, even though the media doesn't want you to believe them, and. It seems to work. Well, their, their president you is can't, Donald
0: Trump. You can't make a fact true. Sorry, a fact that isn't true, true by believing in it.
1: Oh, I entirely disagree. I, I think that you can make it true for you. And, and I want to really emphasize here: this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea that you're making all of these assertions to me about things that we know are true. But how do we do that? Honestly, how do we do that? Because you're saying, I mean, I'm sure you could point to things like, well, if you jump out the window, you'll die. Okay. I'm sure you believe that, but I mean, and I'm sure that you can say, oh, I can point to gravity and I can do certain experiments that support that theory. But ultimately you have a belief about the world and someone else might have a different belief. And this is kind of the joke I was making last week about, you know, the idea of leaving through the door instead of the window, but it really is I think that it's a real thing. It's not as, you know, not everyone's a flat earther. Not everyone's a, um. not not everyone thinks that if you drink the Kool-Aid, you'll be picked up by the aliens and, and whisked off to to Jupiter. I can't remember where they were going. Let's take a drink on that. But there are a lot of people who are willing to believe truths that are less disclaimable, let's say less easy to deny things like the idea that america was meant for the white people or things like
0: those when you get to those things they're not particularly truths or lies i mean there's not it's not you can't empirically say like it's not a statement of fact it's a statement of idealism
1: that's fine but it's all interwoven, exactly like you were saying earlier, right? I mean, it's it's A and B. So I, I think that there's a relationship to the point where you can also say that B can lead back to A. For example, Donald Trump continues to run around saying that he remembers watching large amounts of Muslims in New Jersey celebrating the fall of the towers on 9-11. A lot of people believe that. That's an assertion of fact. But again... What can you say to those people in their universe, in their world, in the rules that they have established for their world? That's all true. And it's indistinguishable from truth because look what happened. Donald Trump said it. A lot of media were angry about it. Donald Trump won the presidency. I mean, this is the way that you can start saying things like the polls are all fake news. The media are well, all fake news. You just
0: simply news. assert facts that can't be proven either way.
1: Sure. But it doesn't matter. That, that, that's what I'm trying to argue to you, is that so many people are happy to just say, well, I, you know, it is. It's true. And what can you say to them? Because here's what I'm trying to say. I feel like you, were, you and I were both making the assertion that knowledge about the world comes down to how much it functions, right? Sure. It functions really well for these people they're they're super happy right i mean the donald trump supporters like everything i thought is proven right donald trump is president we're moving forward i mean everything that comes out of his mouth right we're running like a, a well-tuned machine something like that
0: <laughs> well-oiled machine well-oiled
1: machine, something like that but you know and and that's the kind of thing that his supporters are going to be like hell yeah we're rolling over the bureaucracy, we're moving right past the, you know, archaic old um, governmental checks and balances, we're getting shit done. And we're going to build our wall, and we're going to kick out, you know, all these things. At a certain point, you have to really ask, how can I mean, there are so many border areas of grayness, where how can you know which things are provably true provably wrong and which things are just assertions of belief
0: um i mean anyone can sort of deny any fact like the yeah you can't actually prove anything to anyone if you want to go that far because someone can just simply deny the truth um the the difference is That there are some truths that you simply can't deny. Um, Like if you step out of a window, you know, on the 90th floor of a building, uh, you're probably going to get mangled. Well... Or, you know, simply if you step off a ledge, you'll fall, I should say.
1: I mean, I think that you and I believe that, and we believe that based on our understanding of science and gravity and things that we assume continue to hold in the world. But... Isn't it also fair to say that those things could not hold? I mean, there could be people who believe that physics is constantly in flux and we don't know what's coming next. Maybe there will be moments where jumping out the window doesn't get you killed.
0: Well, I mean, there there are moments like that now. You have base jumpers, you have, uh, you know, you've got people who are escaping a fire and they jump onto one of those trampoline-like things.
1: Sure, but I think even you would say, ah, but the conditions there are different for X, Y, and Z reasons.
0: What I'm saying is that there are things that are simply provable. And then there are things that aren't provable, and when you have something that's not provable, people will believe whatever they want to believe about it. Um, And if you want to take something that should be provable and make it not provable you just have to cast light on you have to cast shadows excuse me on whatever truth there's has been published on the subject
1: well the tough thing with that is convincing them to believe you considering they're already predisposed not to but the
0: the way you convince them to believe you is you push them out a window (laughs) i guess i i do not condone pushing them out of windows by the way
1: yeah let's let's just go ahead and and stand on the principle that people who do not agree with you do not deserve your violence against them can we both agree on that
0: right but what i do mean is that you simply prove it to them um yeah the the hardest part is getting them to accept the proof um and at some point you know they might just flat flat out deny the truth but that doesn't make the truth go away or disappear
1: but here's the problem doug i mean you're saying these things as if you can create truths by through proof but can you can you really i mean you don't
0: create truths through proof you just show their existence you discover them you reveal them
1: if you believe in the process of the revelation yeah well see that's the issue right is is that i mean this is why we still have people who are flat earthers you can show them pictures And they still will not believe you. My grandfather doesn't believe that we land on the moon. And he's got all these well done, very professional documentaries that he owns. And all of these experts who come in and show you why this particular camera footage can't be real or this particular picture can't be real because the light is in the wrong place as against the shadows. I mean, you'll never convince him that we went to the moon. And he's got he thinks he's got science to prove you wrong.
0: I mean, the simply the difference is, whether we landed on the moon or not, uh, that's not changed by the people who believe that we landed on the moon or not.
1: But it does change for them. I mean, as far as my grandpa is concerned, we didn't land on the moon. And the important bit about that is, if my grandpa were a policy maker, it would matter a lot what he thought about what reality was. I mean, Donald Trump is a policymaker. He has a lot of beliefs about the world. We may debate how true those beliefs are. But considering he's legislating, or, well, we can we can fight later about how much the executive legislates, but he's making policy based on things he thinks are true, that kind of makes them true to an extent. It makes them true insofar as they have an impact on the world, that the world operates by those rules that he thinks those things are true.
0: See, I don't think it changes or, or it makes them true at all. I just think it's simply people are making mistakes.
1: You think that. Yeah. But but that's, I mean, that's the and, issue.
0: And the thing is, if I'm wrong and he's not making mistakes, then he's not making mistakes.
1: But you think, okay. Okay, so let's get this down. Are you familiar with the distinction between um, ontological and epistemol- epistemological truths?
0: I was at one point, but I've forgotten.
1: So I love <laughs> this. Okay, yeah, we're going to have a drink now. <laughs> so... I love this. This is one of my favorite things that I learned in undergrad. Ontological truth is the idea that knowledge exists even if you, maybe even nobody could ever know it. Even if the information is literally impossible to actually get to. It exists.
0: Uh, For example, there are moons around Mars even before we were able to see them.
1: Um, not exactly because I think that, you know, you could imagine science coming to the, to the foreground that could prove that I'm talking more about things like, um, I think the Heisenberg uncertainty principle falls into this category that an object literally doesn't have both position and speed at the same time. Such that if you find one, the other is forever locked away. It is it, the knowledge literally doesn't exist. There's no experiment that could ever be done. That's what I'm talking about. So, like, we we talk about okay. So, so in my sovereignty class, one of the ways we talked about this was what are the inalienable rights? And the question is, do they exist even ontologically? Can you even assert that there are such things as? inalienable rights even if we disagree on what they are can you even assert that they exist that's an ontological question an epistemological question is can we discover them so you're making really an epistemological question, okay. uh argument about truth yeah you're... and i'm kind of trying to focus on the ontological the idea that well for those people who cares what the truth is i mean this is what you were saying at the at the jump right this idea that like who cares about this theory of the evil genius because it doesn't matter at the end of the day if i live in the universe of the evil genius and i follow the rules of the evil genius then there's no distinction i that's the world i live in for these people who don't believe as you believe same thing
0: well i mean i'd argue that those people aren't particularly interested in the truth are you um uh... Good question. Uh, it brings us back. I'm not particularly interested in the truth for truth purposes. I'm interested in the truth as far as it serves um, serves me living in the world.
1: So you want functional uh, beliefs. You you want beliefs that help you in, to live in the world. Yeah. Okay. So and, and thus, you're okay with the evil deceiver.
0: I'm okay with the evil deceiver as long as he's consistent.
1: Okay. Or even to the extent he's he's inconsistent, if you can understand the rules. I mean, this is like, this is the fun thing, right? Because before Copernicus, we had these Ptolemaic. We're going to have to take a drink, but T- Ptolemaic, I I think that that was the orbit system we had. And I may well be wrong about that. But we we had an understanding of the orbits of the spheres that were... Uh, they ran the gambit between um, inconsistent but still predictable. They would do loop-de-loops in the sky. They would kind of, sometimes they would come across our uh, field of view and then turn around and go back a little bit before following back through. And we had very solid rules that explained why all these things happened. And we, you know, had consistent um, principles of, okay, well, it's this date and the you know mars has been doing this for a while so now we know that mars is going to do a little de loop back and then it's going to follow forward and everything made sense when copernicus came out with a new idea that was based upon actually pretty solid um regular elliptical orbits they also worked but both worked even though one was true and the other was not so that's kind of what i'm talking about you know that you want useful things that that operate to give you some some grounding in the world that that you know that the world is going to operate a certain way but i think everyone is seeking that and you know what even if everyone's getting their own version of truth they're kind of all finding it
0: see the the problem that i have with your assertion is simply and and by no means is by the way, do I think everything I know is correct? And I think that's where the problem lies, is that I'm willing to be proven wrong, whereas red pillars are simply trying to be proven true. Like, that's the that's the different approach.
1: Well, what if red pillars just feel like they've already been proven wrong, and now they know the truth, in, in the same way that a Copernican might say... I've been proven wrong, and now I'm trying to prove everyone else wrong the way I was proven wrong.
0: Well, see, the problem is that then they become sophists because they believe they know the truth. Whereas I'm always willing to be proven wrong.
1: Well, the thing is that's funny about this, Doug, is that for the last 30 minutes or so, you've been asserting to me that you know things that are true that all these red pillars are refusing to believe. That the difference between you and them is that they reject the truth while you seek it. So...
0: Yeah, but the thing is, I'm always open to be proven and correct.
1: Are you willing to believe the red pillars are right?
0: If they can show it to me, sure.
1: But how could they do that, right? I mean...
0: I mean, it'd be an inconvenient truth.
1: It would be an inconvenient truth. But the funny thing about it is, I wonder whether or not anybody can even make a showing to you at this point. I mean, certainly for me, if you tried to come come at me and claim that red pillar truths like... Let's use a particularly heinous one. Women are parasitic in nature, just by nature, well, right? We would say, I mean, it doesn't matter what you would line up against me. You you could show me anything you wanted to. And I would say that I reject each and every of your proofs. I think that your methods are faulty. And even if I can't come up with good reasons why even studies you might do are wrong, I'm going to claim that they're wrong pending good proof to the uh to that effect.
0: Um I think that's a topic for that's that's so broad specifically that I don't actually think we have time to cover it but my argument would be that um it's it's a social value and as humans we get to invent how we interact with each other socially.
1: What's a social value?
0: Um, the value of women in society. Oh, and okay. I think that's and and any sort of social value um, is is a truth that humans get to make for themselves. And I think that'd be a fantastic topic for a future discussion. But I think that's so broad that I. Wouldn't like to get it completely into it right now. Okay, no,
1: that's fair. I mean, I, I guess when I, you know, just to just to keep it capped narrowly, I guess all I mean is that if if certain statements can be spun out into, well, this part's a social value, this part's a belief statement, this part is a reflection on personal experience, this part is a reflection of scientific method that has, you know, gone X far into the matter. I think there's just so much gray area into which you can inject any kind of red pilling you want. I mean, I think it's hard to argue that the red pill has not been intensely valuable in a lot of contexts. Obviously, it's not intensely valuable in a lot of other contexts, but we've got, you know... The Copernican revolution. We've got the scientific revolution. We've got the wash your hands before doing surgery on different patients revolution. We've got the antiseptic revolution. We've got the penicillin revolution. I mean, all of these things were red pills. They all sought to say that everyone is wrong except for me. So I guess what you're doing, and I, you know, I understand it, and I think it's sort of admirable. You're saying that not every person who claims to know things that other people are wrong about is right to say that. Yeah, I'm, but claiming, how do we that the, know? I'm
0: claiming that the modern red pill movement is separate, separate um, from those other movements simply because those other things can be proven, while these, while most of what the modern red pill people do is just they don't. What what they do is they try to eliminate, eliminate proof to the opposite.
1: Well, hang on. Can it be proven, or does it just work?
0: I think it can be proven that the Earth isn't flat.
1: I think it would be more accurate to say that believing the Earth is not flat is a more functional belief.
0: See, and, and that's the problem, is... Chris, have you ever been to, um, shit, I was about to say Italy. Italy. (laughs) I have been to Italy. Have you ever been to Paris?
1: I have been to Paris.
0: Have you seen the Eiffel Tower? Okay,
1: so I was, I was, I think between 10 and 12 Uh when I went up the Eiffel Tower. So.
0: So so I've never seen the Eiffel Tower. For all I know, everyone could be lying to me all my life Mm -hmm. about if the Eiffel Tower exists or not.
1: I mean, me too, Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could be lying to me right now about if the Eiffel Tower exists or not. And someone could come up to me and say, Hey, do you want to take this red pill and see that the Eiffel Tower was all a lie? Mm-hmm. But I could also, at some point in my life, visit Paris and see the Eiffel Tower for myself to confirm its existence.
1: Yeah, but but Doug, you assume that. I, I think that we are so privileged to live in an age where a lot of... A lot of the things that are fed to us as truths by the authorities of the world, be it the uh, scientific community, the media community, the government community, so much of it is very functional. Believing those things will take you far in the world. Believing there is such a thing as Paris and France will help you a lot in life. But there were ages where everybody wanted to tell you that the world was flat and if you sailed far enough you would fall off a waterfall that led into the eternal abyss and there you would meet with i don't know you would go to hades i you know whatever the case may be and a lot of people would have said that's a very functional view obviously sailors should not sail too far from their moorings There should be uh, functional trade routes that go from one city-state to another, and if you stray too far, then you run the risk of falling off the earth. And it's very functional, and it's very provable, and we've proven it through a combination of sailors' stories talking about being caught between Charybdis um, and—hang on, Charybdis and—okay, I'm not going to get it. Between the famous Greek rock and a hard place. And I can't even remember. I I think it was, Charybdis I think was the monster. But I, I don't remember. There was a famous monster and there was a famous rock. And you either braved one or you braved the other. But anyway, I think a lot of people in that age would have told you, hey, we have a very functional, very true belief. It's provable. It's provable by all the systems we have. We have religious authorities who tell us it's true. We have state authorities who tell us it's true. We have sailors who tell us it's true. We have famous literary works that tell us it's true. And you trying to walk in and say, ah, the world is round and everything, all the corners meet up together. They would say, all right, man, you you can believe your crazy non-truths if you want to, but we're going to continue with our functional view of reality.
0: I guess the difference is that eventually we get to a point where um, the functionality changes. For example, Um, if we always believed the earth was flat, then the function, eventually that stops being functional for us, um, because we have a global society and we can fly a plane, you know, from Hawaii to Japan, um, or the model of the, the planets being, uh, geocentric instead of heliocentric stops being helpful and and usable when we'd start doing interplanetary travel
1: or you know most obviously of all we can have satellites take pictures that demonstrate the that, roundness the, yes yeah
0: so so eventually you know an untruth stops being uh, a lie if you will um stops being functional
1: eventually he, he, let me run this by you because it's something that was very formula formative to my upbringing there was a book i read called Do you remember The Outer Limits? No. Okay. Well, let's take a drink on
0: that. Well, I mean, I was never exposed to The Outer Limits, so it's not a question of memory. Well, I took
1: a drink anyway. So, The Outer Limits was a show much like, um, The Twilight? Oh, no. Hang on. Wait. Wait no help me out what 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 had oh this is awful it was that famous sci-fi creepy show where it was detective story the twilight zone the twilight zone really you you. forgot that i forgot zone i know oh my god because i watched the outer limits so the outer limits was uh similar but different it was an episodic series Each episode would be completely different from the last one. There was no retained characters, no retained universe. It was all... Each one of these, I think, 30-minute shows would try to tackle a new sort of... It would use sci-fi as a backdrop to tackle a real metaphysical nightmare. Um, It would be things like being the last human being on Earth. um, Or, on the other hand, imagine that you are off at war and you realize that each side has just destroyed the other side's home planet. And there's nothing less left of anybody except the armed forces. So they also had books. And I read a book called the outer limits of the vanished. And it was the story of some kids who had been identified as the, by the government as something that the government called cornerstones. So in the actually true physics (laughs) discovered by the humans in that universe, What was true was determined by what was believed, but not what anybody believed, what certain cornerstones believed, that into each generation were born cornerstones, that whatever they believed about the world was true. So for example, when the cornerstones believed the world was flat, the world was flat. When the cornerstones believed and were convinced by the Copernicans, the world became round. Same thing for... Wait, hang on. Damn it. That's not what Copernicus was talking about. Heliocentric. Heliocentric. heliocentric, okay. Anyway, so when the cornerstones were convinced of the roundness of the world, of the world, it became so. When the when the cornerstones were convinced by Copernican's Comper, of the heliocentric version of the universe, it became so. So in this story, some cornerstones were identified and moved to another planet, and as soon as they get, got there. The planet became earth it got the earth atmosphere it got the earth locations and the earth geography and uh, all of the buildings that they could remember and think about were there and that story was really formulated to me because it got me thinking at a young age about this idea of well, what's the real difference a lot of the time between what you believe about reality and what reality is?
0: Um, I think the difference is that red pillars aren't cornerstones.
1: Well, no one's a cornerstone, presumably, although I can't say that for sure.
0: Yeah. So, what you get is eventually, like, there there are truths, I think, um, and it's maybe not a plato like idealism but i think there are truths that are discoverable um how many moons orbit mars uh we can we can know that number of you know we can we can find out that truth mm-hmm. um
1: even if those moons are the size of teacups sure like that information what you're saying is that information is ontologically available even if it's not necessarily epistemologically available
0: right so so what happens is that there are truths we can find them and we can eventually prove their truth and anyone who denies them at that point can go shove off uh podcast (laughs) out
1: Okay, so thank you so much for joining us for the second episode of Sophist Symposium. Now, Doug's messing with me a little bit and made sure that we were out of here before we were really finished with my point. That being said, we really appreciate you listening, and we hope that we will be able to continue to bringing these to you. Um, Just so you know, we're going to try to pump these out every Thursday night so long as we are able And we hope that we continue to bring some valuable content to you, at least to the extent that you can listen to it and not think we're completely insane. Or I guess even if you do, that we're at least valuable to listen to. Thank you so much for your support, and we look forward to seeing you next time.